but in reality he was dying for the sins of his enemies. And afterward he was vindicated and given resurrection life by the Spirit. And now Jesus is exalted as king over all human and spiritual powers. Then Peter shows how baptism points to the vindication of Jesus' followers. So like Noah, they've been saved through the waters, not as a magic ritual, but as a sacred symbol that shows their change of heart, their desire to be joined to Jesus in his death and his resurrection. And so now, even if they are murdered for following Jesus, their hope is in future vindication and exaltation alongside their king. Which leads Peter into the final movement. He recalls Jesus' words that his disciples should consider it an honor and joy to be persecuted just like he was. Peter then calls on church leaders to care for these suffering Christians and to show the same kind of servant leadership that Jesus did to his followers. And finally, Peter reminds these Christians about the real enemy that they are facing. This hostility isn't simply cultural or even political. There are dark forces of spiritual evil at work inspiring hatred and violence and they are to resist this evil by staying faithful to Jesus and his teachings and by anticipating his return and ultimate victory over such evil. All right, good morning everybody. My name is Kevin. I serve as the uh, Atridge site pastor here. And uh, we're in this series called Opportunities in Exile. And uh, over the past few months, we've been looking at how the changing climate uh, in Canada is putting uh, Christians, uh, moving us away from Christendom to, a, uh, to become a culture that is, is losing privileges for the Christians. Uh, we don't pray in schools anymore. Uh, we compared uh, the centennial uh, uh, celebration in, in 1967 of our country in Ottawa where there's Christian clergy and scripture reading and hymns at it and... You can only imagine what a celebration like that, how that would be received in our country now, uh, coming out of Ottawa. It, it, it's, we've, we've changed. Our country has changed. And so we need to be wise as to how we as, as Christians uh, live in a culture where, and where we are not uh, the, uh, the dominant uh, voice anymore, not received that way, and we're moving farther and farther away from that. There still is lots of Christian voice uh, in our country, and we need to be aware of that and aware of how we are received uh, by people. And so we're using this image of, of exile and learning from passages and people in the Bible that uh, we're also in exile. Today we're going to look in the, uh, three areas uh, in First Peter, uh, government and work and family, and uh, we'll talk about those in a minute. I want to start, though, with the punchline, the, the conclusion, the point that I don't want you to miss. So if nothing else really makes sense this morning, here's what I want you to hear. 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, this is Peter's summary of this section, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil, or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. As Christians living is, as exiles in this world, this is how we need to live. Peter's clear that believers need to get along as, as the main way to show Christ to the world. 
Uh, this is not just exclusive to Christians. There are many people that aren't Christians that would live this way as well. Peter is simply saying that if Christians divide and don't show this to one another, the witness to the world is shot if we can't do this to one another. They need to be, we need to be together to have a hope of influencing our culture. So before we move on, if this is the main point, I actually want us to sit with this verse up on the screen and take some time just for self-reflection on this one. Go over it again in your own minds, in your own hearts. Allow the Holy Spirit just to speak to you. How are you doing with this? Think about it for a minute. interesting to go around the room and just ask, how are you doing? I know a lot of you here. I know you're all wonderful people. I would assume that you'd say, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, well, for the most part, well, there is that one exception, you know, that person. Well, that's awkward. I think as Christians, we can disagree, we can fight, we can argue, but we need to remain unified. We need to show compassion and humility and be sympathetic. In other words, we need to put others before ourselves, which is a contrast to first century Roman culture that, will be, that Peter was speaking to. And I'd argue that it's uh, our, our culture today, for the most part, uh, who focus on themselves, maybe themselves and their family. I think Christians need to take the lead in this. We need to deeply care for one another, even when it's tough. We need to go to the place of caring for one another, even when we're inconvenienced. That's the big challenge. We can care for each other when it's all good, but even when it's inconvenient for us. The first century Christians were more than just inconvenienced for one another. They took it to the place of death. That was the persecution that they ended up dealing with. Before we get into uh, some of the key details of government and family work, we're going to look at uh, chapter 2, uh, 11 and 12. Um, Jeremy Martini from Horizon was here last week to talk about our identity in Christ, and this week I just want to build on that and get some of the practical ways, give you some ideas here. So First uh, Peter 2, 11 and 12, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So we've been looking at uh, this image of living in a world or a culture that's not our home. So we have to be clear, first of all, so what is our home? Peter uses all sorts of images uh, to help the New Testament believers connect with Israelites who are wandering through the desert. They were headed towards the promised land. They had the end goal in mind that was a gift from God. They wanted to get to the promised land. Peter says to believers, we have an inheritance that can't perish, spoil, or fade, that is waiting for us in heaven. Our goal is the future eternal, our goal in the future is the eternal glory of Christ. The video talks about uh, vindication or exaltation of Christ. That's the New Testament's promised land. 
not a physical place here on earth. It's a living with Christ in his kingdom, glorifying him. Peter's saying, don't get distracted by the lesser things that come your way in this life that will prevent you from your end goal. Things that this world have to offer you, they miss the mark. Missing the mark is a, a way to say their sin. They're going to hold you up from your goal. They wage war on your soul. Tons of examples of this from our own lives. Kids. Peter could be saying, kids, don't keep spending your birthday or allowance money on candy when you're trying to save up for a bike or an Xbox. Students, don't keep changing your program in school and never completing a degree. If you're going hiking, don't stop at every stream to take a picture when your goal is the summit. It's going to get too late. It's going to get dark. You're not going to make it. Husbands, complete one task before starting another one. Uh, that's not a good one. How many distractions does it take to change a light bulb? What Peter is saying is abstain from earthly, sinful desires. They aren't the end goal. Fix your thoughts, fix your minds on heaven. Live such good lives. One uh, commentator translated that to be such beautifully honest lives. As you're traveling through this world, Live lives that are seen as beautifully honest, bringing the beauty of the kingdom of heaven, which is our real homeland as believers, to the people that you meet, even if they don't like it and even if they don't recognize it. So as I think about what does it mean to live such good lives, such beautifully honest lives, I think about it as learning a skill. Think of a skill that, you just, that doesn't come naturally that you just have to learn. Typing, you know, I just kind of started this way. No, I had to learn actually to, you know, have my arms here and whatever, and have it in the proper way. It's, it's learning a skill. I'm teaching my son to golf. It's not natural for him to kind of, okay, bend your knees and have your hands like this and keep your head down. And you're, it, it's, it's a challenge to, to, to fit your body into this form that actually is the best way to live, actually the best way to perform a, a task. As, as Christians, we... We need to live in the ways that God has designed our world to be. Even if we don't understand it, even if it sometimes doesn't feel good, feel right, practicing good technique is the way that God has designed things. Even though they accuse you of doing wrong. Best way to illustrate this is kind of like golfing with people that have never golfed before. You're out in a foursome with your three buddies, and they've never, you know, they just, they know how to golf. And so they just kind of, you know, the best way to get the most distance is just step into it and whoo, you know, that's how you golf. The first person tees off and then the second person, yeah, same thing. Just that's the way you golf. Third person, yeah, just step into it. Pow. Sure. And then you step up and your bum's out and your knees bent and head down. You swing through the ball. And they're looking at you like, that looks like the most craziest, dumbest way to ever hit a ball in the world. Why in the world would you just stand there when you can take a wind-up at it? Step into it. That's the way to get some distance. And so their balls go off and woo, woo, woo. Though they accuse you of doing wrong. But by living good lives, beautifully truthful lives, look what happens at the end of the round. 
good technique is going to win. At the end of the round, buddies are going to need to admit that the beautifully truthful way, the good technique, is the better way. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. In other words, at the end of the round. This echoes the words of Jesus, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So let's get practical. Today's, last week was more the, the identity and holiness. Today's more the practical side of that. Let's get practical and learn some good technique, Christian technique on how to live good, beautiful, truth, beautifully truthful lives in this world that will help us live in a foreign land. See if you can find the common words uh, in these three, these three groups that we're going to look at. 1 Peter 2.13, submit yourselves to every authority. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. There's a key word here. It's not a fun one to talk about. It's not a technique that feels good. It's not a technique that comes naturally. But it's a good technique to live in a foreign land. To help you understand where I'm coming from here, I think it needs uh, a little bit of uh, a little bit of an, an, an illustration so that you can recognize the value of this, because otherwise you're not going to listen. No one wants to hear submission. But here's, here's, what I'm, I, here's some examples of, of what I'm meaning. Hopefully it, it connects with you. Uh, young parents, I'm just kind of coming out of that, so I, it's my context story for using that as an example. But when you're a young, young parent and you end up going over to another family's home, they're good friends of yours, and you're going over to, to visit another family, uh, they just raise their kids totally different. So when you step in the door and you say, hey, how are you doing? Good, yeah, wonderful, wonderful. You don't start with, you know what, you guys really should have a different bedtime. You guys really should have different screen parameters for your kids. You know, you're, you're, the way you feed your kids and what they eat, is, you should probably change that. You don't step into another family's home and world and tell them how to raise their kids. Like, that's, just, that's a good, quick, friendship-ending moment there. You come into their home and the rules change for your kids. They, you submit to the way that they do it. Maybe not in everything and you raise your kids to be discerning, but there has to be some acknowledgement that, that things are a little different there. For those of you, maybe broader example, those of you who like to travel. You go to another country, you don't get off the plane and go, you guys got to learn English. Like, what is it? Is you're not celebrate Canada Day? It's unfortunately, we, 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 uh, we hear of those kinds of things happening, and, and it's, it's not a good way to be a good visitor. And in this world, we're, we're visitors. We, we belong to heaven. As a Christian, you're, you're not a local in this world. It's not your home. You're, on, you're in exile. You're on a journey. You're in transit. You're, you're just passing through. You don't get to set the rules. You submit to the rules. Peter says, live good, beautifully honest lives that reflect the values of the kingdom of God. And, he goes on in, in chapter 3, verse 15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So when the other family notices, hey, you know, like, how do your, your kids are so well behaved. How do you do it? They ask. Then you have an opportunity to give to share about 
why you do what you do. That, that, then you can say, well, it's our bedtime, you know, we do this. When someone in another country comes to you and says, hey, can you help me with English? Then you can say, here, this is how you say hi, and here's how you say, then you can help someone. You come in and, you, and after they ask, but even there, Peter still has a concern. So he adds on, but do this with gentleness and respect. Don't make them feel dumb for not knowing English. Talk to them. They're smart people. Teach them. If they ask and they want to learn, then awesome. Maybe you should ask them if you can learn their language as well. But do this with gentleness and respect. When your life earns the opportunity to speak to others, be ready. When life is tough, when you're in a really sticky situation, and you have this hope, you have this peace that just is, you're filled with. And people say, why are you so relaxed? Why are you, why, why are you, why are you freaking out? Everyone else is. Be ready to explain the hope that you have found in Jesus in that situation. So, with all that, let's get into uh, submission of authorities and masters and husbands and all these great submission things. Hopefully you're ready to listen to the value of submission today. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So the context here is an authoritarian rule. Most likely it was uh, the emperor Nero, who is most famous for uh, burning his own city and blaming the Christians for it. They were a great scapegoat. They talked about fire in the end time. So yeah, of course they would light a fire. They were also people who drank blood and ate flesh. So we have some cannibalistic pyromaniacs. Perfect. That was the way that Christians were perceived. Flesh and blood was, to Christians, the Lord's Supper. That's not what the culture heard. The culture observed them very differently. So, Christians are blamed and tortured as a result. I can imagine uh, early believers getting this letter from Peter and saying, submit to the guy who's going to roll us in tar and light us on fire. So, I'm supposed to pay my taxes to this guy? That's not good stewardship at all. There's no way I'm paying my taxes to a guy so he can have more resources just to kill us. And the Christian brother on the other side would go, the Lord saith, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And the response would be, no, like, Jesus didn't mean that literally. Well, no, Jesus meant that literally. No, Jesus meant that figuratively. Yes, we have to do it. No, we don't. I can see the argument raging on of what it meant in first, the first century Roman world to submit to a ruler who was going to destroy them. Regardless of how it was received, in an absolute dictatorship like the first century, it was expected that a citizen's whole duty was to render total obedience and pay their taxes. That was, that was what you were supposed to do, everyone. That's what you do in, in that type of government. So we're getting practical. So what does that mean in a 20th first century Western democracy? 
How do we relate? I found a quote on this where, as, I was, as I was studying that I thought would be helpful for, to submit to you as a, to, for your discernment. Contrasting first century Roman authoritative uh, emperor to 21st century Western democracy. The author says this. In a democratic state, the keynote must not be subjection, but cooperation. For the duty of the citizen is not only to submit to be ruled, but to take a necessary sharing in the ruling. Hence, if a Christian is to fulfill his duty to the state, he must take part in its government. In other words, be part of the democratic process. Vote. Influence our politicians. Strive to help our country realize the Christian values of helping the poor, vulnerable, and oppressed. Provide food, clothing, and shelter to those in need. That's what this author is suggesting it means to submit to democracy. Be involved in it. That's what democracy is. So how do we juggle the tension of being citizens of heaven and also citizens of Canada, living on earth? This is where Christian freedom comes in in this passage. Uh, chapter 2.16, we are free people. This is a new concept for them. In Christ, we are free. The world is not our home. But that, that doesn't mean that we can now go do whatever we want. This was new in their minds, and it's like, oh, I'm totally free. I can do whatever. The Christian thing has given me freedom to do whatever. I'm free in Christ. Paul's saying, no, it, you don't just get to go and, and do whatever you want. It's not follow the rules. There's a, a quote here that says this. Christian freedom is always conditioned by Christian responsibility. Christian responsibility is always conditioned by Christian love. Christian love is the reflection of God's love. And therefore, Christian liberty can be rightly summed up in Augustine's memorable phrase, love God and do whatever you like. The Christian is free because he is the slave of God. Christian freedom does not mean free to do as we like. It means we are free to do as we ought. So what ought we do? Next verse, verse 17. Show proper respect for everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. Or I'll say in our context, the government. I'll come back to this in a minute when I, when I summarize. Let's talk about, talk about slaves. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to the heart, those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So slavery back in the first century Rome was... was Massive and totally socially acceptable. 60 million slaves. They were thought of as property. There was no difference between a shovel and a slave. If you're working in the garden and you break a shovel, you go to Rona and buy a new one. First century, if you are, break a slave, you go and buy a new one. No difference. No rights. They were property. And yet, Paul... And Peter are now introducing that 
Slaves and masters are now brothers. There's no Jew or Gentile. There's no slave or free. There's no male or female. All are one in Christ Jesus. So Peter here is recognizing and figuring out how do you, how do you live in a, how, do you in, how can we live this out in our context? We're not just going to overthrow a system that massive in a day. We can't just do it by force. What do we do? And so he says, submit. Submit to your masters. Whether they're good or whether they're absolutely jerks. Submit to them. So how do we apply this in a, a world where slavery is abolished? I think it's fair to say, submit to your employers. Work hard for them. Even if you have a jerk boss, don't go spreading rumors or starting a rebellion against them. Serve them. Bless them. Show them the same attitude that Christ showed as he went to the cross. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. If you're the master, if you're the employer, be a blessing to your employees. Stand out for your beautiful, truthful goodness to them. And again, I'll come back to this in summary. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold, jewelry, or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect. For husbands, this was much uh, easier and quicker uh, to explain. If a husband became a believer, his whole family would. First century Rome, whatever, whole family just follows the way of the husband. Women didn't have rights to their own opinions or to their own beliefs. They were just expected to follow their husbands. It's interesting that Peter even addresses women, that he even addresses slaves. Why, why not just write a letter to men? Why would you write a letter to and address slaves? Address women? That was a huge step forward for slaves and for women and their, their rights, even just being addressed. Uh, how do we live this out in, a, in our, our world uh, today? It's obviously a difficult question. Um, women's rights have significantly advanced. Um, I think it's fair to apply this not just to women, but to people who have an unbeliever in their family. There's all sorts of complexities here in the room, and I, I acknowledge that with this one. But I think it would be Paul, uh, Peter's uh, suggestion that forcing faith onto someone in your family isn't the way. Don't, don't just go and force it on them. I think he kind of addresses this in, in a couple directions. Um, women with unbelieving husbands would be kind of like people who are exiles in their own homes. They're living in a home where the unbeliever is the owner, a Christian youth whose parents are unbelievers, a Christian exchange student living on it, uh, in an unbeliever's home, or maybe even a Christian or a Christian family going over to an extended family member's home, unbelieving family member's home. How, how should they live in that context? And I think it's clear, submit. They don't pray for supper in their home. Don't force your beliefs on them. It's their home, it's, it, you're in their world, don't force it on them. I think we end up relating maybe more 
together as with husbands, believers that are interacting with unbelievers in their homes. I think it could be fair to say, to translate this and, and replace husbands with believers and wife, uh, wives with unbelievers. Husbands are believers in the same way. Be considerate as you live with your unbelievers. Treat them with respect so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Whether it's, a, it's an unbelieving spouse or whether it's an unbelieving uh, family member or whoever it is that's coming into your home, treat them with respect. Be considerate. There's, there's, there's lots of complexities here that I think you're, you're, you understand the, the challenges that come with this. Hopefully, this point of summary will help. The context for this whole book is community. There's a, there's a factor that comes into play when we discern how to live as a believer in an unbelieving world, and the fact is that Christianity is to be lived out in community. We listen and we discern with one another. As I started, we need to be in unity with one another. I'd be happy if people here left and discussed the sermon and chewed it through and disagreed and argued it over in unity. I think that's where we need to land some of these really challenging things. For some of you, you're, you're thinking, well, like, this, this letter would be, is far easier to understand in a totally um, oppressive culture where people are constantly being persecuted for their faith. It is easier to understand it in that context. We don't experience that. So here's a quote that might help for those of us who, who are wondering, okay, what about the submission? What about all the persecution? Why? How do we live when that's not our world? The reality is that there are people in this room that are living in persecution, and we have a responsibility to help them. Here's, here's the quote. For Christians who are among the privileged voices, uh, from among the privileged, the voices from the margin reflected in these letters might serve as a call to responsibility for our suffering brothers and sisters. Instead of hearing the words, accept authority of your masters with all deference, not only to those who are kind and gentle, but also to those who are harsh, as a call to passivity, Christians should hear the voice of the poor and the afflicted. James 2 reminds readers that those who see a suffering brother and sister and do nothing to help gain nothing from, from professing to be Christians. There are people here that are suffering for the gospel. They are hurting. If you hear these words, help them. Serve them. If you know someone here just has a brutal boss that is afflicting them, and they are just struggling through this verse, our responsibility as believers isn't to go, boy, that really sucks for them. No, our responsibility is to help them. How can, can we find them a better job? Can we go and employ them in our company? Can we, what can we do for them? People that are struggling in their marriage, how do we help? I'm going to close. I call the worship team up here. With a, a, a quick summary uh, from Jeremiah 29. Uh, verse 4 to 7. And I think it fits well as a theme of submission. Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage. 
so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Old Testament prophet Jeremiah saying, Submit. Pray for the prosperity of Canada. Pray for the prosperity of your boss. Submission is a good technique when we are living in a foreign land. At this time, I'll invite you to stand, and we are going to continue in worship through song. And parents, I invite you to pick up your children from Growth Kids.